Thank you for tuning in to the True Suspense podcast, completely free with no interruptions from advertising. If you enjoy what you hear, we would greatly appreciate it if you would follow or subscribe and rate and review our podcast. It helps new listeners find us. Please note that Season 4 involves sexual assault and other charges of criminal violence, so listener discretion is advised. Buckle up and get ready for True Suspense. I'm Arthur Perlstein, and this podcast from the True Suspense Collection is Body of the Crime. Here is Episode 3, Justice Delayed. As the new semester began at Peru State in January of 2011, the college began offering free self-defense courses. About 60 students and staff members ended up enrolling. A local gun store owner told reporters that while he didn't see a spike in gun sales following the disappearance of Ty Thomas, he was selling more canisters of pepper spray to Peru State students as well as a few electric stun guns. On January 31, 2011, just weeks after the contentious preliminary hearing over KJ's allegations that she had been repeatedly raped by Joshua Keitel on Halloween, the police department in the town of Fremont, Nebraska, was contacted by an 18-year-old woman who claimed that in December of 2008, She had been raped in a dorm room at Midland Lutheran College when she was only 15 years old. This is the woman we referred to as simply Julie, not her real name, in the prologue to Body of the Crime back in Episode 1. Julie told police that she had been following the news reports about missing Peru State College student Tyler Thomas and mounting indications that Josh Keetel was somehow involved in the disappearance. And she had become aware of KJ's allegations about Keetel. Julie said that she had not reported the incident back in 2008, but she felt she should report it now, since the man who had raped her was none other than the very same Josh Keetel. Midland Lutheran College had since undergone a name change to simply Midland University as part of a rebranding effort by the new college president who took the helm towards the end of 2010, a man by the name of Ben Sass, who would subsequently go on to become a highly regarded U.S. Senator from Nebraska and later President of the University of Florida. Julie's case was turned over to Detective Joyce Henke of the Fremont Police Department. Detective Henke knew she had her work cut out for her because determining the truth and proving Julie's claims would not be a simple task 
over three years after the alleged crime had occurred. Julie said she had a witness, but locating him and getting his cooperation was not a sure thing. Nevertheless, the detective, a highly experienced investigator specializing in sex crimes, was determined to give the case her all. Joyce Hankey had joined the Fremont Police Department in 1987 and jumped at the chance to join its detective bureau in 1991. She would later explain that, quote, I knew it was something that would be a good fit for me, and it proved to be a very good fit. I really like the in-depth type of investigation. I like doing background stuff. I like digging for details and finding that little piece that puts everything together. I like finding all those connections, unquote. Fremont Police Chief Jeff Elliott described Detective Henke's work with sex crimes this way, quote, One of her best attributes is her ability to talk to people one-on-one and to really get them to open up and tell her the truth. It's difficult to get people to tell you about certain things, and Joyce has dealt a lot with sex crimes, and that can be really hard to get people to open up about some things that have happened to them or what they have done. Unquote. Meanwhile, the trial of Josh Keetle for his alleged rape of KJ was set for April 13, 2011. The judge in the case ordered that Jeffrey Pickens, an attorney from the Nebraska Commission on Public Advocacy, serve as co-counsel for Keetle. The commission is a state agency that defends many indigent people accused of capital and serious violent crimes in Nebraska. Criminal defense services for those who cannot afford a lawyer are mandated by the state and federal constitutions and state laws. In smaller counties like Nemaha that cannot afford to maintain public defender offices, the Nebraska Commission on Public Advocacy furnishes highly qualified defense attorneys in high-profile cases because the costs for a county to contract with a private attorney can be prohibitive. Jeff Pickens was highly regarded, known by colleagues as a lawyer's lawyer. By early March, the April 13 trial date for Keetle in the KJ rape case was rescheduled for June 7 after the judge considered motions related to evidence and witnesses in the case against Keetle. Also in March, Keetle was found guilty of criminal mischief after a one-hour trial in the misdemeanor case involving his having kicked in and damaged the door to his dorm room at Peru State. Testifying at the trial was one of Josh's former roommates, Brennan Witted. Brennan had actually dated Ty for a couple of months, and it is through him that Josh Keel had originally met her. Brennan spoke to reporters on the day of the trial. He expressed surprise that Ty would have been with Keetle the night she disappeared. He actually told me that he had no feelings for her, did not like her at all. She told me the same thing about him. So to find out they were together is definitely weird. Brennan Whitted also described how Josh had acted and what he had said the day after 
Ty Thomas went missing. He just acted real normal about the situation. He, he acted like he didn't know anything about it. And he just started throwing, throwing these ideas out that maybe she's hiding in Omaha or somebody, Jade and somebody have her hidden or something. Asked about whether Keetle was capable of violence, his former roommate expressed little doubt. He got kind of violent. He'll try to get in my face about some stuff. He's definitely capable of hurting Ty. And I don't know, I really don't know the situation, but he's definitely capable of doing some damage. As March drew to a close, Josh Keetle was sentenced to 90 days for the criminal mischief misdemeanor of kicking in the door. He was already in jail awaiting the rape trial. The conviction heightened questions as to why someone with Keetle's background had been allowed to stay in the dorm through the time of Ty's disappearance. Peru State President Dan Hansen pointed out that federal law prohibits college officials from talking about present or former students and any disciplinary actions they might have faced. The college emphasized, however, that it does not set age limits for enrollment, and occasionally older students choose to live in the dorms. Although applicants for admission are asked whether they have been convicted of a felony, if a student does not disclose it, there is not much the college can do because conducting criminal background checks on potential students is neither practical nor affordable. President Hansen explained that such checks are generally not conducted by colleges and universities in the United States. He expressed confidence in college policies and procedures, which had recently been reviewed in light of the circumstances. And yet, a remaining mystery was why the Peru State Head of Security, Les Stonebarger, had been suspended in the wake of the disappearance of Tyler Thomas. Stonebarger's attorney, Steve Mercure, said his client's suspension had been, quote, somewhat of a hasty decision, unquote, made by administrators, and that his client deserved to be reinstated. He did not discuss any reasons that may have been given for Stonebarger's suspension. President Hansen had previously posted a message on the Peru State website regarding the security chief. It read, quote, we are aware that the media has reported that the college's director of campus housing and security has been suspended from duty. For the good of our institution and our employees, the college never comments on personnel matters. As you move into the workforce, you will find that this is standard practice, which I know you will respect. Any personnel decisions that are made are the product of extensive deliberation. The safety and security of our students has always been and will always be our top priority. Les Stonebarger had held a security position at Peru State since 1993 when he was first hired as a security officer. He was promoted to chief of security in 1996 and was given the title of director of housing and security in 2004. 
according to the biography of Stonebarger that had been on the college website before being taken down, quote, Les enjoys working with our students to ensure a safe and comfortable on-campus experience while also helping visitors, unquote. The biography went on to point out that Stonebarger had been a certified reserve deputy since 2000 and, quote, often works with the Nemaha County Sheriff's Department, unquote. According to the attorney for the suspended security chief, quote, he's been very dedicated to the safety of students, staff, and administration throughout that time period, unquote. As the month of April ended, Nemaha County Sheriff Brent Lottman, acknowledging his own frustration and the pain experienced by the family not knowing, assured the public that law enforcement was still at work on the case, including assistance from the Nebraska State Patrol and the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Temperatures had risen with the dawn of spring in Nebraska, and with thought of the ice on the Missouri River, the search for Ty Thomas had resumed. Investigators continued to believe it was most likely that Ty was at the river's edge when she disappeared. For that reason, the Sheriff's Department was focusing on the river near Peru. The Missouri Water Patrol was checking downstream. Ty's photo was still pinned to bulletin boards around the Peru State campus, and a page devoted to the search remained on the college's website. No new leads as to Ty's whereabouts had been developed. During the third week of May 2011, family and others close to Tyler Thomas were disappointed when it was announced that the case involving the alleged rape of K.J., which had already been delayed to June 7, was being postponed again and would not take place until September 13. Fremont, Nebraska detective Joyce Henke continued her investigation into Julie's allegations of rape from back in 2008. In June, the Missouri River began swelling to record levels and floodwaters expected to last for months made search efforts in and around the water virtually impossible. The Nemaha County attorney, Louis Liguri, explained that it was extremely difficult to get boats out on the river. He said that if Ty was in the river, the rising waters could bring her body to the surface. On the other hand, Liguri said it was also possible that a body in the river around Peru could be swept downstream with considerable force. Late in June, there was a major new development involving Josh Keetle. While he was still only a person of interest in the disappearance of Ty Thomas, and the trial for the alleged rape of KJ was still over two months away, it was announced that Assistant Nebraska Attorney General Sandra Allen had filed a first-degree sexual assault charge against Keetle for the rape of Julie 
at Midland Lutheran College in 2008. Fremont Detective Joyce Henke's investigation appeared to be paying off. In an affidavit filed with the court in connection with the new rape charge, Detective Henke described Keetle having entered the Midland apartment room while the then 15-year-old Julie was asleep and sexually assaulted her after Christmas 2008. Henke also explained she had interviewed a witness to the crime. Keetle's arraignment in the case involving Julie was set for August 2011, but he would end up entering a written waiver of formal arraignment along with a written plea of not guilty. Also in August, the trial for Josh Keetle in the case was postponed for a third time, rescheduled from September 13 to December 5, 2011. Meanwhile, there was another development in August that garnered attention in Nebraska and beyond. A 19-year-old woman by the name of Lacey Anderson had gone missing in Nebraska, the town of Norfolk, two years earlier, in August 2009. She was last seen at the apartment she shared with her mother. I hugged her that day, and that was my last hug. A massive search was conducted, and many weeks went by with the family not knowing where she was or whether she was alive or dead. However, three months later, there was shockingly bad news. The phone rang, and they asked if, they, if I would come into the police station. And I said, well, did you find Lacey? Deer hunters had found Lacey's body in a remote wooded area north of the town. She could only be identified through dental records and a shoe of hers that was found at the scene. She had been brutally murdered. Like an animal. You know, somebody just dumped her out there like she was a coyote or a raccoon on the road and let her be. Lacey had been, as her mother put it, mixed up with the wrong people before her death and may have been involved in methamphetamine use. It was revealed that before her murder, Lacey had provided law enforcement with information regarding several drug-related crimes and persons involved. She was due to name more individuals and testify in a criminal case in the weeks after her death. The last person thought to have seen Lacey was a notorious drug dealer in the Norfolk area. People had questioned the drug dealer, but he reportedly knew nothing about her disappearance and murder. But early in August 2011, news came out that someone else might have been linked to the murder, Josh Keetle. He and Lacey Anderson worked out at the same gym, and Josh had been a bouncer at a club that Lacey was known to frequent, as well as a cook at a restaurant where Lacey and her family regularly dined. It's very possible their paths have crossed. Lacey's mom, Pam Johnson, felt a special bond with the family of Ty Thomas. 
smile is just like Lacey's smile. If you look at them and you compare pictures. The Nebraska State Patrol investigated Josh Keedle in connection with Lacey's murder and was able to secure his cooperation in providing a DNA sample and information on his whereabouts at the time of her disappearance. Keedle's DNA was tested against that found at the crime scene. It was not a match. The state patrol also announced that Keedle's alibi checked out, and they were ruling him out as having had any involvement in the murder of Lacey Anderson. This homicide remains unsolved to this day. Anyone having information that might help find the culprit in the murder of Lacey Anderson should contact the sheriff's office in Madison County, Nebraska at 402-454-2110. In the middle of September 2011, prosecutors in Nemaha County added new counts against Josh Keetel on top of the charges for sexual assault, false imprisonment, and terroristic threats in connection with KJ's allegations about the events of Halloween in the previous year. The new counts were for the use of a weapon in commission of a felony. KJ had told police that Keetel warned her he had a gun underneath the car seat. Although a search revealed no gun, you will recall that an acquaintance of Josh Keetle had claimed Keetle had asked him to hold on to a gun for him. Under Nebraska law, guilt for using a weapon to commit a felony can be found if there is proof the defendant even indicated the presence of a firearm, quote, regardless of whether such firearm was discharged actively employed or displayed, unquote. The trial date did not change again and remained set for December 5. In the middle of October, the flooding of the Missouri had subsided enough so that the search for Ty Thomas in and around the river resumed. Shannon Ennis, a friend of Ty's family, was one of those volunteers involved. Interviewed by a local news station the Sunday that the search resumed, Shannon expressed the frustration that many had felt in having had search efforts disrupted by the flooding. It could be a bit discouraging for a lot of us and a lot of, of her friends and her family due to the fact that she hasn't been looked for for some months. You know, it's been months that's passed and she's still, you know, she's not found. Searchers were racing against time to accomplish what they could before winter weather would hamper their efforts once more. Family, friends, and volunteers said that part of the reason for their search efforts was to underscore that Ty had not been forgotten. On October 26th, both sets of sexual assault-related charges, the one involving the alleged rapes of KJ near the Peru boat ramp, and at a Peru state dorm on Halloween of 2010, and the one involving the alleged rape of Julie at Midland Lutheran College back in 2008, came together in a sense. Nemaha County Prosecutor Louis Liguri 
in preparation for the trial against Josh Keitel in KJ's case set for December 5, had requested that the judge in that case, Daniel Bryan, allow the prosecution to call Julie as a witness. The reason? The prosecution argued that the alleged rape of Julie at Midland Lutheran was evidence that could help prove the assaults against KJ in Peru. In 2009, Nebraska legislators had passed Rule 414, which provides that, quote, in a criminal case in which the accused is accused of an offense of sexual assault, evidence of the accused commission of another offense or offenses of sexual assault is admissible if there is clear and convincing evidence that the accused committed the other offense or offenses." Unquote. So, on October 26th, Judge Bryan convened a hearing to take evidence and hear arguments on the issue of whether Julie could be allowed to testify in the case involving Keitel's alleged assault on KJ. Julie testified at the hearing about what she experienced back in 2008, and described having fallen asleep in her friend's room, only to have Keetel use darkness to sneak into the room and awaken her by starting to have intercourse. When Keetel stood up, Julie learned it was not her friend, and she became very upset, though she decided not to report it at that time. The prosecution also put on a witness who had observed what happened. Michael Wush, the freshman Midland Lutheran linebacker who had shared the apartment with Keitel and whom Julie had come to visit. Michael, at this point aged 21, testified that on that night in 2008, he had left Julie asleep in his room and went to the living room to watch TV. When he got up to use the bathroom, Michael said he heard noises in the bedroom and looked in to see Keetel having sex with Julie. He said he later confronted Keetel about it. Jeff Pickens, Keetel's attorney from the Nebraska Commission on Public Advocacy, asked Michael if he was certain he saw Keetel penetrate Julie rather than assume that he did. Michael said he could not be absolutely sure. The reason, quote, He's a big guy, as you could see. I couldn't see unless I'm really looking, unquote. Julie testified that she had notified police about Keitel in January 2011 because, quote, I saw him as a murder suspect in newspapers and on the news, unquote. The fact that neither Julie nor K.J. had come forward promptly to accuse Josh Keetel of assaulting them is not unusual, according to Susan Mikalski, a potential expert witness from Omaha who also testified at the October 26th hearing. She explained that it is not uncommon for victims of sexual assault to try and minimize such incidents rather than report them promptly, frequently based on feelings of shame or fear. Keetel's attorney argued against allowing this expert to testify at the upcoming trial, 
saying that the jury would already know this and the testimony would simply be prejudicial. He also asked the judge not to allow Julie to testify in the case involving KJ's allegations. Judge Bryant promised a ruling on who could testify by sometime in November, well before the trial would commence. The judge was true to his word and ruled on the matter in November, a month that would prove pivotal in the Halloween rape case. Early in the month, Keitel's attorney filed a motion to dismiss the case, arguing that there was no evidence supporting KJ's version of the story. Then, on November 15, Judge Bryan ruled that, for now, he would not allow Julie to testify in that case. Later in the month, things took a strange turn. Keitel's attorney, Jeff Pickens, and Nemaha prosecutor, Louis Liguri, traveled out of Nebraska to jointly take the deposition of KJ in advance of the trial. During the deposition, Pickens asked KJ if she had communicated with Josh Keitel after the alleged assaults by Keitel on Halloween of the prior year. KJ insisted that she had not. But Pickens then showed her pages and pages of printed Facebook messages that she had sent to Keedle after the Halloween encounter. On November 30, Pickens and Liguri were in court on the motion to dismiss the case that Pickens had filed earlier in the month. Pickens explained that the Facebook messages, 38 printed pages in all, demonstrated that K.J. had been dishonest and that Josh Keedle's professions of innocence and claims that relations were consensual were true. The prosecutor asked for a postponement of the trial, claiming that he saw these documents for the first time during the deposition just two days earlier, and that, in any event, the pages only showed K.J.'s side of the conversation, not Keedle's. Attorney Pickens countered that Liguri should have had the documents much earlier. A lengthy recess was called after a very tense exchange, and the prosecutor and defense attorney met privately. After returning from recess, Prosecutor Liguri asked to have the case against Keitel dismissed. The judge granted the request ending the case, but without prejudice, should the prosecution later wish to reopen it. Keedle, who had claimed innocence all along, felt exoneration. He insisted he had been ready to go to trial and implied the dismissal meant he lost his day in court. According to Keedle, quote, We never even thought of negotiating a plea deal. I don't care if he dropped it down to jaywalking. I'm not going to plead guilty to something I didn't do. Unquote. Part 
public reaction to the prosecution dropping the case was generally negative. Many at Peru State College expressed disbelief. Here is one student speaking to reporters on campus. I couldn't believe it. Like, after hearing so many stories, the same thing over and over again. I just, it's insane that he can just get away with it. Coincidentally, the same day that the case was dismissed, a day of remembrance and prayer vigil for Tyler Thomas was held at the Peru State campus. And Josh Keetle continued to proclaim he was innocent of any wrongdoing in connection with Ty's disappearance. He claimed that those investigating her disappearance had twisted his words when he tried to help. Keetle said, quote, I told them everything in order to help. I didn't have to do that. I didn't. I could have said, I want a lawyer, and not say a word, unquote. Though public opinion locally was still hostile to Josh Keetle, a few who followed the case could be forgiven for thinking that perhaps he was not the monster he was being portrayed to be. There had been an assumption that with KJ's accusations of the rape and threats of throwing her into the Missouri River near the same boat ramp where Keetle had claimed to have left Ty, there could be little doubt he was responsible for her disappearance. And many had, if only briefly, assumed he was also responsible for the murder of Lacey Anderson. If it turned out that KJ had been lying and Keetle had been ruled out in the Lacey Anderson case, could it be that he was being falsely suspected of harming or killing Ty Thomas? With the KJ rape case dismissed, Josh Keetle would have been a free man but for one thing he was still facing the charges for the alleged rape of Julie, and when the case in Nemaha County involving KJ's allegations was dismissed, Keetle was simply moved to Fremont, Nebraska, where he was transferred to the Dodge County Jail. In December, it was announced that the judge in that case had set a trial date of March 13, 2012. Early in the new year of 2022, there were still no further leads in the disappearance of Ty Thomas. Frustration was widespread, and there was concern that if prosecutors failed to convict Josh Keetle for the 2008 rape of Julie, he would be back on the street. Everyone anxiously waited for March 13 to arrive and Keetle's trial to commence. When the day came, it became clear with the opening statement of Josh Keetle's attorney that Detective Joyce Hankey had accomplished quite a bit in her investigation. It turned out that, having located and interviewed Michael Weish, who had witnessed what happened that night at the Midland Lutheran College apartment, Detective Hankey was able to parlay that into a jailhouse interview with Josh Keetle himself. In his opening statement to the jury, Keetle's own attorney, Jeff Pickens of the Nebraska Commission on Public Advocacy, startled many when he did not deny that the then 27-year-old man 
had gone into the bedroom intending to have sex with the 15-year-old girl. Quote, We concede all of that. The only issue is whether there was penetration. Unquote. Kittle's defense, it emerged, would be that he had been suffering from erectile dysfunction and therefore did not actually commit rape. After opening statements, Assistant Nebraska Attorney General Sandra Allen, who was prosecuting the case, called Herfert's witness. It was Michael Wush. She took Michael through all he saw and heard. Michael also said Keitel admitted to him later that he left the lights out so Julie couldn't see it was him. The best that defense attorney Pickens could do on cross-examination was to have Michael acknowledge that he could not see actual penetration. Quote, I seen Keitel on top of her. Unquote. And Michael continued, quote, He was close up on her, and that's all I seen. Unquote. During the trial, the jury also heard from Julie as witness for the prosecution. She admitted to drinking the night of the incident and being, quote, somewhat drunk and to having had consensual sex with her then 18-year-old friend Michael earlier in the evening. But she was clear and undeterred in describing what happened when she later went to sleep by herself in Michael's room. When I woke up, someone was having sex with me, Julie testified. She said that when he later got out of the bed and she could see it was Josh Keetle, she was utterly shocked and upset. Julie described how she loudly confronted him upon learning what had happened. Keetle himself did not testify, but his voice was plainly heard and at length during the trial. The interview that Detective Joyce Henke had conducted was played for the jury, lasting well over two hours. During that interview, the detective cautiously and painstakingly took him through the events of the evening in 2008 and, after listening to some of his lies and denials, got Keetle to make some admissions. The jurors heard Josh Keetle first repeatedly denied having even met Julie, but they watched as Detective Hankey had persisted and kept showing him Julie's picture. He eventually conceded that, yes, he recognized Julie, and later recalled having met her. After passage of considerable time, Keetle admitted on the tape that he had taken his pants off and laid down next to Julie, but claimed they didn't have sex. Quote, Let's just say there's no way I could have had sex with her, Keetle told the detective. Quote, My junk wasn't working. Unquote. Keetle explained to Detective Hankey that he had gone to a doctor about erectile dysfunction earlier that same year. He told the detective, quote, 
you're asking if I had sex with her. I didn't. Unquote. Keitel claimed that Julie was awake on the bed when he went in and asked to have sex. In Keitel's words, quote, Was I going to try? Yeah. Did I know she was 15? No. Unquote. He said he was trying to get himself ready when Julie turned and saw it was him, not Michael. When the interview came to a close, Keitel told the detective, quote, You got what you wanted, unquote. Joyce Hankey asked him what he thought she had wanted, and Keitel responded, quote, The truth. When the detective then asked, Do I have it? Keitel replied, Yeah, you do. A physician's assistant testified for the defense that in July 2008, Josh Keitel had been prescribed a testosterone replacement gel because his testosterone level was low. After the two days of testimony ended on Wednesday, March 14th, court resumed on Thursday for closing arguments. Assistant Nebraska Attorney General Sandra Allen said she essentially agreed with the defense attorney on one thing. It had all come down to whether Josh Keitel had sexually penetrated Julie. Ms. Allen said that Julie, quote, got up on the witness stand and she told you what happened to her. Who better than her to know what's in her body? Unquote. Keitel's attorney, Jeff Pickens, tried to turn the video the jury had watched to his client's advantage. The lawyer pointed out that during the video, his client had been in tears as he admitted to Detective Hankey during the interview that he'd gone into the bedroom to have sex with Julie, but was unable to do so. Pickens claimed that it was there that, quote, the truth came out. There's no doubt about that, unquote. And Pickens also cast aspersions on Julie, saying she had been, quote, drunk, confused, and mistaken, unquote. According to Pickens, Keitel was guilty of extremely bad behavior, but, quote, that's not the issue here, unquote. But prosecutor Sandra Allen had the last word, as the party with the burden of proof. She responded to the defense closing argument by calling Keitel a con man, pointing out that in the interview with Detective Hankey, Keitel had initially denied even having met Julie. Why would he have lied about knowing her, the prosecutor asked, unless he had something to hide? When closing arguments ended on Thursday, the jury was sent to deliberate. Meanwhile, among those in the courtroom were some especially interested in justice for Tyler Thomas. One was Tyler's family friend, Shannon Ennis, who we earlier heard from as she participated in the search for Ty. Shannon said she had attended the trial to, quote, be there for Ty 
it doesn't have to do with Thai, but it has everything to do with Thai. Unquote. Tyler's cousin Kaneta was also at the trial, which she said really upset her, but she was also optimistic. Quote, Hopefully, it's just justice across the board. Unquote. The jury deliberated for three hours before notifying the judge that they had reached a verdict. When the jury came back in, Josh Keetle shook his head and seemed genuinely surprised as the clerk read the words, We, the jury, find the defendant guilty of first-degree sexual assault. Although not audible, Keetle was said to be clearly forming one short word with the movement of his lips. Wow. Sentencing of Keetle was set for April 24, a little more than a month later. Nebraska Attorney General John Bruning gave a statement the state would be asking for the maximum sentence of 50 years, half a century in prison. Quoting from the statement, quote, He clearly took advantage of this young, naive girl. We hope today's verdict will ensure he is ultimately held accountable for what he has done. When April 24 arrived and court reconvened, Judge Jeffrey Hall lectured Keetle and those assembled before issuing the sentence. Quote, you, sir, have been a user of women throughout your life. No ifs, ands, or buts, unquote. Judge Hall said he very much hoped that the young woman's courage would serve as a wake-up call to all parents and young people. Quote, There are criminals out there who will take advantage of people. That, Mr. Keetle, is you. The judge blasted Keetle for his modus operandi, accusing Keetle of bouncing around from one small college to another, pretending to be a college student, but making little effort toward graduating. Judge Hall asked, quote, Was that your attempt to take advantage of young, naive women? Unquote. The judge answered his own question. Quote, I don't know. While acknowledging that Julie had made some poor decisions, Judge Hall was emphatic that, quote, she didn't deserve to be sexually assaulted by you or anyone, unquote. Josh Keetle offered an apology. He said, quote, sorry doesn't begin to describe how I feel. I took advantage of her and I am sorry. I hope my actions don't affect her future. I'm ready to take responsibility. I should have never went into that room. It was wrong." Keetle's attorney, Jeff Pickens, said his client had been vilified by the press and portrayed as a serial rapist and killer. But he pointed out that Keetle never had a felony conviction before this case. While acknowledging that Keetle took advantage of the girl, 
His attorney insisted that his client didn't use violence. According to Pickens, Keitel was, quote, not the worst of the worst. He's far from that, unquote. As promised, Assistant Nebraska Attorney General Sandra Allen asked for the maximum. And Julie did too in a letter to the judge. She said that if Keitel got a lighter sentence, she worried that he would hurt other girls like her. The prosecutor commended the victim, saying she showed her strength by coming forward. Quote, she wanted everyone else to know the true Josh Keitel, unquote. At the same time, Prosecutor Allen said she doubted Keitel's sincerity in apologizing and said he was trying to calm the court. According to Ms. Allen, Keitel was only sorry that he got caught. The judge also made clear that the sentence he was about to announce was only based on the charges for which Keitel had been convicted. Judge Hall acknowledged that, quote, there are people in this courtroom and across the state that wish to see you pay for other crimes, real or suspected, unquote. But the judge explained that was not his job. In the end, Judge Hall sentenced Keitel to 15 to 20 years with credit for almost a year that he had already served. That meant he would be likely to serve around 10 years and have to register as a sex offender for the rest of his life. Members of Tyler Thomas's family were in the courtroom to show their support for the victim. They were not happy with the sentence, however, which they felt was unduly light. This is Ty's aunt, Hope Siemens. So, I don't think it was fair what they gave him today. I think he should have gotten longer. However, Ms. Siemens thanked Julie for being strong, saying it would help in the long run. Ruth Coleman, another one of Ty's aunts, said Keetel needed to be locked away for more time. Quote, this is not closure, not closure at all. It will be closure when we find Ty. Unquote. Join us next week as the family of Tyler Thomas turns their growing frustration into action. Stay tuned for Body of the Crime, Episode 4, Placing Blame. Body of the Crime is a production of True Suspense Podcasts. Written and narrated by me, Arthur Perlstein. Music, sound engineering, and post-production by Guy Bainbridge in Walls End Studios. Be sure to visit truesuspense.com for more information about this podcast and other True Suspense productions. If you like what you hear, please help us spread the word. Don't forget to subscribe and rate us wherever you listen to the podcast. It helps new listeners find us.